When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is an episode of The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll that we have been looking forward to since we started, and we're almost to three years doing this podcast. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, all about Black Sabbath in the Aussie years. Yeah, we definitely had to split this story up into multiple parts because it's such a grand story with so many little stories that are woven into the big story. I started looking into that and realized it's a lot. Like the next part of their story, there's just so many people involved. But here at the beginning, there's four guys and we want to talk about those guys. You know, the legend is that they got their name from a movie title. It's true. The movie Black Sabbath starring Boris Karloff, the cool ghoul, you know. Man, that guy was so good in those old horror movies. It's kind of a name game thing, Marcus. And it starts with Tony and Bill. They were in a band called Mythology, right? Yeah. And they hook up with Geezer and Ozzy, who were in a band called Rare Breed. So, did they end up hooking up together because... I think there was an ad, as there often is, right? And the other network that people had was the local music shop. So, Ozzy hung one up, and this is what it said, you'll love this. Ozzy Zig needs a gig, has <laughs> own PA. And you know the power of having a PA if you were a singer in those days. We've, we've talked about it, right? <laughs> David Lee Roth. So, they threw aside those names, and they became... And I don't know how they did this. Maybe we don't even need to know, man. <laughs> the Polka Talk Blues Band. The now, what? I understand the blues part. They could have just called it the Drop D Tuning Blues Band, right? Absolutely. But how did the polka groove go and in, fit into this picture? I have no clue, but there are other people involved. They shortened the name uh, to Polka Talk. Maybe that was a joke. <laughs> And realized how stupid it was, I guess, and changed their name to Earth. And Osborne hated that. Oh, we're Earth. Oh, why can't we be Sky? I don't know whatever the argument was. Right? Just, this is what bands went through, whatever the argument was, right? Well, when you look at it, man, Iomi became the de facto leader, and he's the only guy who is on all the Sabbath records through the decades and all the changes. <laughs> So 
Next up, fate intercedes on the behalf of all heavy metal fans, Marcus, when Tony leaves to join the burgeoning Jethro Tull Empire. What? And then he was in Jethro Tull for a minute, and he was on their appearance on that long-on-the-shelf Rolling Stones rock and roll circus show. Wow. But he didn't want to be in Jethro Tull. He didn't like what they were doing, and he moved back to Earth, like, within a couple weeks. A few gigs, and we've done a gig with Jethro Tull. And it was the night Mick Abrams was leaving, and they asked me if I'd join. I didn't know what to do, really. I told all the others, and I said, what do you think? And they said, well, you should, you know, you should have a go. You should go. So I went down and auditioned with them, and with these 200 other guitar players. I thought, there's no way I'm going to sit around here waiting for my go when they'll say no at the end of it. And uh, it happened. I got the job, and, um, and then that was, for me, real strict work, because it was like 9 o'clock in the morning, rehearsals on the dot. And I'd never experienced that. Bloody hell, this is, you know... Nine o'clock in the morning, getting up. The quote, which is one of his most clever, is, I just wasn't right, so I left. And he knew that Tull was going to be something great. It just wasn't for him. They seem to do pretty well also. So they're doing gigs, and they're getting tired of getting mistaken for this other band named Earth. Ozzy's probably thinking, see, I told you guys, Earth is a terrible name. There's too many. There's a band called Earth on every continent. Jeez. So... <laughs> They're walking around, and across the street from where they're rehearsing, they see the cinema is playing the movie Black Sabbath with Boris Karloff. Come closer, please. I've something to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? This is Black Sabbath. Directed by the great Mario Bava. I don't even know who he is, but I know he's the director of this thing. An instant response from the research team. They call him the master of Italian horror. That's Mario Bava. So they see this. They think it's a cool name. They changed their name to that and then wrote the song Black Sabbath, which kind of like solidifies the two. Yep, this is our thing. The cornerstone of heavy metal, no matter what else is going on, and there's a lot going on. This is the beginning of the building of the metal world. It's really wild to think about how metal came from this moment and how these four lads from Birmingham completely changed rock and roll. They gave it a throat punch. They gave it some serious energy that it had not had before. I remember from our conversation with Johnny Z, his summation about Black Sabbath and heavy metal. Johnny also knew what we know, which is nothing happens overnight because of one thing. And it is all about Black Sabbath in the Aussie years here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, sponsored by Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. You can save 15% by hitting History 15 into the code box at boldfoot.com. And by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro, in the heart of Delco, and now in the heart of Horsham, both sponsoring the podcast, and we thank them for their support. You know what the whole basis of this thing is? The whole musical basis? They always called it the Devil's Interval because of the sound, the ominous dark sound that that drop detuning makes that we always talk about and how it transferred from generation to generation since Tony Iommi, right? Yep. Like many other bands that were doing something different, the fact that they added that extra heavy and the drop detuning add that dark, scary sound, the adults freaked out about it. And with a name like Black Sabbath, 
<laughs> Devil's music, Satan, blah, blah, blah. Overlooking the fact that they were all religious kids themselves. Very religious. Why we always got to bring the devil into it, right? That's what I'm always saying. Well, like, you know, the left-handed people getting slapped on the, yeah. with the ruler in school, in Catholic school, because they're going to knock the devil yeah. out of you, all this stuff. All the crap with the, you know, the exorcisms and the gain you know, and out with these, all this crazy stuff all related to uh, people having this thing about the devil, man. I guess they're really worried about being evil, and so, therefore, they have to externalize and project their shit. <laughs> maybe those, oh, am I getting off the horse here? A little bit, because maybe those people that are so worried about the devil are actually evil themselves. Hmm. No way to tell for sure, so we'll just keep rocking <laughs> with that drop day tuning, motherfuckers. And the heaviness it sets off really kind of punches a hole in everything that was going on musically. Even Led Zeppelin, as they were launching around that time, right? They were already out. And grungy, too. It had that grungy feel as well. You know, you mentioned Led Zeppelin, but the Yardbirds were also considered super heavy at that time. But, boy, these guys, with what they did, took that heavy to a whole new level and really inspired a lot of bands to try to do something a little different and enough of us initially liked it so they sold a bunch of records and that got everybody's attention about what was going on with this heavy music and it led to a lot of bands and a lot of lives being better because people who felt things weren't feeling like they had to keep it in that's true do you remember hearing black sabbath for the first time at that point in your life gotta say no it wasn't a strong impression on me like from 1970, 71, but as time went on, I started hearing these songs because, you know, radio really wasn't embracing a lot of it. Some of it, sure, but not like they were playing everything else that was coming out. I remember hearing them for the first time in the late 70s, right after Ozzy left the band. But what were you hearing? Radio, I was hearing Paranoid, and I was hearing Iron right. Man. Those are really the only songs that I remember from the early days until I got into the 80s when I started listening a little bit more to them and then Ronnie James Dio and the Neon Night stuff, which is for a different episode. But I explored Sabbath more after Ozzy released his solo records because that is where I really got into Ozzy. Crazy Train and Mr. Crowley and the stuff like that is what really, I think, opened me to who Black Sabbath was. You're not alone in taking that path, Marcus. I think there are a lot of people who are right there with you. 
But let's go back to the beginning. In that weird picture of that strange girl, right? I saw an updated picture of the woman, and she looks like she has aged nicely, mm-hmm. and the wall is gone from the original cover. But the, the home, the house is still there. It looks a little less scary in the picture that I saw. And the thing about that first album that sets a trend is the presence of Roger Bain. I don't know if you know much about him. He was a producer in England at that time. He would go on to help Budgie and Judas Priest to establish their sounds. And he produced the first three albums from Black Sabbath. And you think about the influence of those first three Sabbath records and Roger at the helm. That sound is being crafted by him. The band is learning what he's doing as they become more involved in producing. And you see, as time goes on, that they take over more of a hand in the studio. But this guy, Roger Bain, man, he's responsible for a lot of what happened there. He also learned how to record what they were doing, and that showed them how to do it, which led to them being able to do more the way they see it down the line. And I think as we go on in our conversation about the albums, Marcus, you'll be able to put together in your head the changes that are caused by his departure as the sound of Black Sabbath changes in the 70s. The producer for Black Sabbath Volume 4... The band and their manager, Patrick Meehan, and it really brings in the story of Pat Meehan, who was their overseer in a lot of ways up until uh, 1975, and that's when Don Arden came in. You know who Don Arden is. Oh, yes, I know who Don Arden is. You know who worked in Don's office because she was his daughter. A young lady named Sharon! (laughs) So Pat was the manager at that point, and he was also an established record producer. He'd roadied for Gene Vincent. He'd worked with the Small Faces. And he'd worked with that Small Faces manager, Don Arden. So it's all connected, Marcus. And Patrick does fall out of favor with Sabbath. And I guess you'd look at it like, well, at least Don's going to manage him. You know, he's a friend of his, so... That kind of stuff in every scene, right? And by then, they were part of the bigger scene. Sabbath became part of the world scene when it came to the heavy music that we all love so much. And it almost didn't happen, a lot of it. I mean, let's talk about Ozzy for a second, go back to his humble beginnings, right? Um, he was known as a rough-and-tumble guy in his neighborhood where he where he grew up. Ended up spending some time in the local jail. Uh, He wrote about it all in his book. He wasn't shy about his problems with alcohol and and everything through the years. But he does in the book explain how he ended up with the PA, and I think he ended up with a lorry as well. And it kind of made it easy to get yourself a, a chance to be a singer. And that's how things came together for him. And him and Geezer were pretty tight all along. He had a rough childhood in spots His, with some of the things that happened to him. And it impacted, I think, his songwriting as he got older, being abused by bullies at school. Things like that happened. So. He was different. He was one of those kids that yep. was different. He was a theater kid, too, at a young age. Loved the theater. Was acting in dyslexic. school plays. Yep, dyslexic. And, of course, back in those days, that was definitely grounds for bullying. Sad. And it's pretty well known that Ozzy credits the Beatles with kind of saving them. So like an entire generation in the rock and roll world, 
He hears the Beatles. They change his life. He said then that he knew it was rock and roll for him. Death, jail, or rock and roll. And he did some time in jail. So he left school. He worked. He had a lot of different uh, jobs. He knew that he was going to be a hardworking guy and that school wasn't for him because of the dyslexia probably, right? Six weeks in the Winston Green will fix you, and it did, and he didn't want to ever go back to that. So that's what leads to him hooking up with Terry Butler, and they formed that first band together, Rare Breed. Meanwhile, around town, Tony Iommi, he's been working in a factory. He's getting down to the last couple days. He can't wait. He's quitting this shit job. He's going out into the world, right? Yes. Last day of work, sheet metal factory. Loses the tips of two fingers, his middle and ring finger on his right hand, which would normally be your pick hand, except for he's left-handed. So that is often credited with his unique fingering style. Same way that we've talked about at times about Jerry Garcia losing part of one finger gave him a different feeler edge in how he approached his instrument. Tony improvises and makes it work creating a change in music that has been emulated ever since, man. I mentioned briefly, Geezer, Terry, Butler. What a great guy. Got to know him a little bit at one point. He was doing GZR, his solo thing at one point. Just a cool guy and a great bass player. Very creative and very much a part of the mix when it came to writing and creating the music in Black Sabbath. So I'm rooting around and I'm listening today as we get ready to record this episode. And I'm listening to Never Say Die. And I find this note that just blew my fucking mind, Marcus. Are you ready? Yes. Kim Thale from Soundgarden cites Never Say Die as one of his favorite Sabbath albums, even though it's not generally held in high regard. Correct. At the end of Never Say Die, Ozzy's last appearance in chronological order on an album is over to you, almost like a handoff, right? And then there's Breakout, an instrumental song. And there's these crazy sax breaks that are built off of The Devil's Interval. And I start listening and I go, holy shit, wait a minute. That reminds me of like A Room a Thousand Years Wide or Drawing Flies from Bad Motor Finger. And then I see the comment that this is one of his favorite Sabbath albums. And I'm like, holy shit, the infusion of that idea from Never Say Die makes it into those songs on Bad Motor Finger. If you listen, it's some of that same nasty Coltrane in the middle of the night kind of riff. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that record because I love Bad Motor Finger. And I've read in multiple interviews over the past where Kim Thale and Chris Cornell have cited Black Sabbath as a major influence on their sound. And this is the kind of stuff that happens when you start digging into a band that you know. And then you start thinking, well, what's this or what's that? And holy cow, how did I not know that? And that's what happens when we dig. And I know that some of you have the time and look into your favorites and what's going on and uh, deeper than just the music. You find the same things when you go out there and look. So uh, just bringing it on home in our first episode, really, about Black Sabbath, the Aussie years covering here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's funny that they were called Earth for a while, Marcus, because there's four of them and there's all the elements, right? And the element of thunder was provided by uh, Bill Ward, who was influenced by a lot of the same drummers that keep coming up in our discussions. Uh, uh, Buddy Rich, 
Blue Bells, Gene Krupa. He's another one that had a lot of influence on drummers of the 60s and 70s era because of what they were exposed to when they were kids and what was around when they were coming up. And some of the musicians from his era that he was influenced by, Ringo Starr, Jim Capaldi, John Bonham. One of the things about Ward is, for whatever reason, and I never really got the full story, even from Ozzy's book, they didn't all four always mesh the way you would like to as a band. And Bill sometimes following his own path or having his own point of view, he felt, hell, I'm the drummer in Black Fucking Sabbath. I, I have a say. But at some point, he kind of works his way out of the band, too. They let Ozzy go because they said he was partying too much and he didn't want to work on music. Well, maybe what was going on is that he didn't want to work on music with those guys, or at least Iomi, right? Very possible. They put a lot of albums out in that short span. They had been together for a long time, spending lots of hours on the road, in the studios. It can be wearing on you, and if you have strong personalities, there can be a lot of conflict. They'd only reunite with Bill for a couple all-star type sets. Live Aid... I think a lot of people ate their pride and went to Live Aid and did the right things. And Sabbath was one of them, right? Yep. And at an Aussie show in 92, and I don't know if that opened the doors or made it more possible that when they got down the line towards calling it a day, that it was easier to get Bill back in because there wasn't conflict on those little interactions that they had through the off time when they weren't working together. Am I making sense here at all? You're making sense. It's hard to interweave all of the conflict into the story, especially when it's gone on as long as it has with Bill Ward. I mean, without super details, you make a lot of sense. I totally get where you're coming from. As will often happen, usually further down the line, a health scare actually causes Bill to leave Sabbath the first time. A health scare? In 1980, uh, he was replaced, and on short notice, by the way, by Vinny Ampice. They found out that uh, Bill had had a heart attack, and they wanted to be able to continue, I guess. And Vinny, who is one of the greatest drummers of all time, was available to them, because the show must go on, Marcus. And sometimes it can, and sometimes it can't. But as we've seen in rock and roll, it does. Generally, it does, with very few exceptions. True. Doing this podcast for almost three years now, we learn stuff all the time, and I've always focused on those first four Sabbath albums as being the Ozzy era, but it actually goes on with Ozzy for what, eight albums, which makes his departure all the more surprising because even though the band had kind of faded, not a lot, but had faded a little in their commercial success, um, they were still pretty strong, even though the band wasn't really doing their best work, some people would say. The records continued to sell, and people continued to go to the show because they knew they were part of something. 
and we'll dig in and talk a little bit more about those albums next on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Hey folks, if you haven't checked out Boldfoot Socks yet, go to their website and do it today, boldfoot.com. And if you like what you see and you want to place an order, you can save 15% on us by entering the code HISTORY15 in the discount box. Now, Marcus, you've had some great personal experience wearing your Boldfoot socks. That is correct, Ray. I am an active cyclist. After hearing Josh tell us about his experience running a race in the desert in his Boldfoot socks, I had to give it a try on the bike, and they held really well. My feet didn't feel funky afterward, and after my spin class... My feet felt great, not all wet and yucky. Wet and yucky, bad. Feeling (laughs) bold, good. (laughs) Go to boldfoot.com and check out all the styles, and they've got a wide variety of styles, no matter what your mood is about your socks and uh, colors, designs. It all fits into what you want out of a sock that holds up, and they definitely give you that support you need. I know from the times I've worn mine, Make sure you go to boldfoot.com and use the code HISTORY15 to get 15% off of your first order. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. When you get thirsty, you need a beverage that you can count on, a beverage that will satisfy that thirst. And if you're a beer lover like me, and I know you are too, Marcus, nothing tops the fresh brews. At Crooked Eye Brewery. They make the brews right there. You can actually look in the window of the brew room and see the brew being made. And a lot of other things are happening uh, on weeknights, various things, including Thursday trivia, uh, the Wednesday blues jam. They also have open mic night, the first, third, and fifth Mondays of every month, if you get that lucky fifth Monday. I can't do math when I'm a Crooked Eye, not if I have like one (laughs) Crooked IPA, I can tell you that. And open mic Mondays now alternates with Name That Song. Ray, I hear vinyl night's coming back to Crooked Eye. That's right. First Tuesday of the month, starting April 5th, I'll be back at Crooked Eye for Vinyl Night. Come on out and hang with us. And Marcus, they've announced a special concert at Crooked Eye May 15th. The great Philly legend, Charlie Gracie. Make sure you come spend a special Sunday afternoon with this Philly legend from 1 to 5 p.m. at Crooked Eye. Always something fun going on there. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And, of course, in Delco at Jamie's House of Music. Born the cure for what ailed you in Hapro since 2014. We'll see you at Crooked Eye. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Ready to ride and dig into the albums, the music that made them great. It's all about Black Sabbath, the Aussie years, this week on The Imbalance History. You know, I might not have been 100% right about not remembering my first time hearing Black Sabbath, because I think it might have been Paranoid or Iron Man like you, but at a different time, like when they were brand new. Just making a general remembering point. (laughs) because initially it kind of caught me there. I'm like, ah, geez, I don't know. I remember this or I remember that, but I don't remember where where I first heard that. But that first album has stood the test of time, man. You look at what it's done. Platinum in the U.S., gold everywhere else that matters. And it leads to Paranoid, which goes four times platinum here. That's some impressive stuff. And you're doing this out of the gate. The fact that they were able to hit hard and explode at the level they did was quite impressive with the heavy sound. But it makes sense because if you have the media going, oh, my God, these guys are evil. Oh, my God, Black Sabbath. Kids are going to be like, oh, what's that? I've got to check it out. I'm sure word of mouth spread fast with this band. Let's start at the beginning with that debut album, Marcus. It's four guys making shit happen. And because they don't know that much, that's where Roger Bain comes in handy. Yes, they needed somebody to show them the ropes and walk them through the recording process. You can't do that by yourself if you have no idea what you're doing. Show us all the punch-ins and the twiddles, will you? <laughs> Is that the British slang for recording? <laughs> I'm making it up as I go along. You know, one of the things that people do when they make an album is sometimes they'll record a song from somebody that they really like because, hey, royalties matter, right? Yes. On the debut album from Black Sabbath, you think, that oh, we're going to put all our great new songs out. We're not going to do any cover songs. The last song is called Warning. It's from the Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation. Ainsley Dunbar, famous session drummer, was members of this and that, right? Journeys, played with Zappa and Jeff Beck, everybody. He collects a royalty on one track, whatever one track's worth of royalty is on the debut album from Black Sabbath. So Ainsley Dunbar, like a source of income since the 70s from Black Sabbath record sales. Kind of cool, huh? Very cool. And Evil Woman is also a cover done by somebody called Crow, a band I've never heard. So they got some royalties, too. Hey, I didn't even think about that. Right. Also, one of the things that I learned and I had no idea was the fact that they recorded this album in one day. One day. You're a new band. You've got a budget. If you blow it all, 
then you don't get paid for a while. But if you keep some of that money in your pocket, you can afford a new lorry. Woohoo! So the label gave them a one-day budget? Hey, you got one day. Oh, no, no, no. I don't know how you manage what the dollars were and all that, unless you can dig up uh, the people who were there and tell us about it. The fact is, they did it quick. They had it all figured out. Maybe they even knew what songs that we're going to do that were going to fit together, because that's always part of the equation when we're talking about the old days in vinyl, right? True. But, you know, a lot of people aren't sure what the hell exactly this new thing is, and people have all kinds of opinions, and a lot of people are dismissive. And I don't get it. When I listen to that album, I hear something formative and basic to the foundation of all heavy music to follow it. Even if you want to include Led Zeppelin as part of the foundations of heavy metal, and I understand why some people do, together, they're two cornerstones of an amazing sound that changed the way people experience music. They changed music for me. I remember hearing Zeppelin and Sabbath in the early days. Zeppelin hit me a lot harder, but Sabbath did so much too. They scared people. And the stuff that's on the second record, Paranoid, doesn't change that. The tale of Iron Man. Right from the beginning when Ozzy breaks into that vocal riff, This isn't something that we've been hearing on record since the Beatles <laughs> broke down all the barriers. And then War Pigs, the bombast and the length of the track, right? Yeah, the radio still plays it. Yep. And it's still an entire long 757. And one of the things that I find very interesting about this song is people request this song not understanding how anti-war this song is they were one maybe of- they do or maybe they don't but people need to know that it is they were a very political band even though people maybe don't realize it they were against the vietnam war at that time they were part of the youth rebuilding england after they got the shit bombed out of them in world war ii the thing that'll surprise you the most everybody is that they were part of the environmental movement that was starting at the same time in england as is in the united states yep and people overlook that because they're a heavy sounding band and listen to their lyrics closely they're very intense they're very thought-provoking and they're very intelligent so they start 1970 with all that and the whole year is filled with all kinds of rancor about all this They spend part of the summer recording album number two with Roger Bain and September 18th, 1970, the album Paranoid is released with all those songs we were just talking about and much more. Planet Caravan, 
and fairies wear boots. These are different sounds. Instrumental stuff like rat salad. These things all start to work into the mix as they find themselves as a band with Roger Bain guiding them at the helm. Unique to the heaviness of the music we're talking about, the Black Sabbath. One of the things that I noticed that really impressed me about these recordings is that because they were so heavy, he didn't try to make them too loud and you could still hear and feel them without being over distorted. On those first couple records and on Master of Reality, the third and final album that Roger Bain would produce, listen to the clarity you hear in the instruments. There was no way to gauge how to record guitars because they hadn't made the sound that Iommi was making on these records. Listen to the way the drums are recorded, the way the vocals are recorded. And when we get to Master of Reality, you're starting to hear the Ozzy vocal sound taking shape as Ozzy becomes better at what he's doing, as the band becomes better at what they're doing in the studio. It's all coming together. It really gives you a feel for how they were connected to the earth. Very important was Chiba to Ozzy at that time. <laughs> it wasn't I mean, ever. I think seriously, it kept him straight up, you know. <laughs> I agree too, and I think it helped keep him level and grounded in some aspects when he didn't mix the cocaine and the uh, booze and all of that with it. That's where Master of Reality kicks off. But the other songs that are on there that really stood the test of time, like After Forever or Children of the Grave, Into the Void, all great songs, all top-shelf stuff from this chemistry kit that is these four guys and whoever else Roger Bain gets involved, right? Absolutely. And Soundgarden does a fantastic cover of Into the Void on the uh, Bad Motor Finger extra disc that includes a cover of Devo. Do they ever. And Ray, the U.S. pressing of this album was quite different than the original U.K. pressing because it had songs like Death Mask and a few others. I think Step Up was another additional song that wasn't on the U.K. album as well. The U.K. album had eight songs and the U.S. pressing had 11. We're at the point where the band, having learned how to twiddle and what buttons to push when decide that they're ready to produce themselves. But their manager, Pat Meehan is in the studio with them, I guess, to make sure they do know how to twiddle properly. So, (laughs) and that's where they are when they're making volume four. Lester Bangs gave the album Volume 4 some love in Cream Magazine, saying, We have seen the Stooges take on the night ferociously and go tumbling into the maw. And Alice Cooper is currently exploiting it for all it's worth, turning it into a circus. But there's only one band that's dealt with it honestly on terms meaningful to vast portions of the audience, not only grappling with it in a mythic structure that's both personal and powerful, 
but actually managing to prosper as well. And that band is Black Sabbath. Mic drop. Fucking Lester, man. That dude was a genius. Yeah, and listen to the songs he's saying that about. Wheels of Confusion. Stuff like Supernaut. You're talking about a song that influenced people, right? Snowblind, which became a classic to the fans, even though it wasn't a big hit, right? Things like that. Or the, the grittiness of St. Vitus Dance, some of the instrumental stuff. In one song on here that I think really portends for the future for John Michael Osborne as a solo artist. they find their studio voice i also think that this is where ozzy has found his voice and what his voice will sound like moving forward into his solo years and then sabbath bloody walking sabbath after destroying themselves in la they go back to london and they're doing it all themselves no training wheels patrick mean's gone they're just doing their thing The album kind of wraps up 1973 and think about what else was starting to happen out there in hard rock and in metal, Marcus. What else was going on in hard rock and metal at that time? The beginning of Judas Priest, the emergence of the Scorpions, hard rock bands who had a little bit more edge in their guitar. But there was only one band that was making this noise, man, to date, right? And they were the only ones who had that uh, devil's interval working, right, on Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. <laughs> And while the songs may not have been as strong as some of their previous stuff, a lot of people really put this album as one of their main influences. And that's why I think it's got such a long-lasting legacy. Just them being Sabbath. Even tracks I forgot, like Who Are You or Looking For Today, reminded me when I was listening to them just how good this album was. What about the relevant even today, Killing Yourself to Live? That one smacks you with some reality, too. 
You know, uh, working yourself to death used to be a, a common thing. And there's something else about this album that I couldn't wait to tell you, my dear Marcus. What? On track four, Sabra Kadabra, playing the keyboards and the mini Moog on loan from his duties, yes, from yes, the one and only Rick Wakeman, ladies and gentlemen. Nice, I did not know that. Next time the Sabbath boys get together, they decide they need somebody who knows how to twiddle the knobs and when to start and stop all the tape machines. His name's Mike Butcher, and he kind of worked with them on the previous album, but on Sabotage, he's listed as a co-producer. And they released that in the summer of 75. A little more time between albums, but they took a long time and went on tours, too. That was the thing about Sabbath. Through all this, we're talking about the albums and stuff. They were doing tours where they started as an English phenomenon and then got themselves, you know, on tours and, and tours book. They built it from the ground up. You know, it's one of those things you got to do when there's nobody doing what you do. Uh, we should probably do a thing where we just talk about the tours the Black Sabbath was on through the years, right down to the final, you know, reunion and retirement shows. That would be a fun episode. Their tours were legendary. Other than when the drummer won't shut up on a 400-mile ride, what pisses bands off to no end? <laughs> what? When managers fuck them. And that's what they figured out around the time of Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. That uh, they were being ripped off, both by the record company and by their managers. And so they decided they were going to just make a change. And so they do. That's always a difficult time. They have to rebuild because they got fucked so hard. It's like you're a sports franchise and you're trying to win the championship in a rebuilding year, and it's just very tough, very tough. <laughs> but, you know, they still go platinum with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, after platinum on volume four. And the next album, Sabotage, is kind of an interesting change because this is where they start to become even more influential. This is one of the albums I know very little about. I got to listen to it a little bit over the weekend. And the only song that I can even remotely remember is the first track, Hole in the Sky. And Symptom of the Universe. And something about that title is what I've been wanting to talk about. So many of the titles, you got to look at the lyrics. If you're just discovering Black Sabbath, welcome to the universe as we know it. Oh, by the way, a proud moment as a grandfather. I'm a pop-pop. You didn't know that? Yes, I did. Marcus, I knew you do. I'm talking to them. Uh, and he's not a little baby either. He's a teenager, and he just discovered Ozzy. And so uh, when I turned him on to Black Sabbath, it was like I opened a whole different world for him. You know, he's gone all the way back and digging into all of it and I just love seeing that and how, you know, we're passing that along like I did with his mama. <laughs> Good stuff. But you know what? It, it's not an album that we all listen to a lot, Sabotage. I see it occasionally in somebody's collection and all, but it, it's it's a solid record. So they've got to kind of reconnoiter and figure out what they're going to do next. And that leads to 1976's Technical Ecstasy, recorded in the summer and released in the fall leads to more touring we did it at criteria down in miami with themselves at the helm again you won't change me is a song that you know speaks to the voice that i've been talking about about ozzy finding his voice uh, for the future as well backstreet kids a little dirty rocker that's pretty damn good stuff
By this point, I don't know for sure, but safe bet is that our pal Ozzy has begun to live the good life as a rock star, as a wealthy rock star, making big bank the life that he wants, that he always hoped he'd have, taking care of things and taking care of people. And now it's time to be the millionaire rock star. And he was good at it. I don't know that it was a rock and roll mentoring thing, but this is the point where they take Van Halen on the road with them. I mean, VH was really brand new, so it was making sense to take them out on the road. But as you know, you put a big crowd with Van Halen as the opening act. There had to be some nights where it was like, Lord, what do we do to ourselves? I've read stories about this tour, and Van Halen came out of the gate, guns a-blazing. And they put a lot of pressure on the act that they were opening for because they put on such a good show, and they just brought it night in and night out, and they were hungry. And despite whatever you know hurt feelings there was about all that or how it all went down, they still had a good run. Things aren't exactly terrible in the, in the camp, except for one thing. Millionaire rock and roll lifestyle that I was joking about earlier Mm -hmm. starts to take over. And Ozzy's not in a hurry to write songs or work with them. And they kind of get tired of it, I guess, and decide that's it. We're going to make a change. I I think there's a whole story there that I don't know all the details of. And maybe I never will unless we get Sharon or Ozzy on to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is he departs Black Sabbath. And a lot of people thought that was it for them. And we know that was not the case. Not too many people said, well, that's it for Ozzy Osbourne. He was aligned with Sharon through Don Arden's office, right? And she became involved with him. They were one of the founding forces in Jet Records, which would also uh, be a big place for ELO, another band from Birmingham, right? So it was time to leave the nest, I guess. But it was a little uncertain as a fan at that time. Like, hmm, I don't know what's going on here. Sabbath kind of broke up, and I don't know who this Ronnie James Dio guy is. Boy, that would change quickly. I can tell you, I remember hearing about Black Sabbath breaking up and being like, oh, a band broke up, and that was it. Never thought about it again after that. And then Ronnie James Dio appeared. I can't forget to give a man his proper footnote in history. There was a temporary replacement. Former Savoy Brown and Fleetwood Mac member Dave Walker was briefly brought in to replace Ozzy. And that was that. Tony said something years later along the lines that they didn't really ever want him to leave. And they, they, they want him to come back and nobody would tell each other what they were thinking. And maybe that's the time when Ozzy was thinking, you know what? I'm going to go do my thing. I have a friend or two who feel this way. By the way, Neanderthal is one of them that equates Ozzy to Elvis Presley. He's the largest selling solo hard rock metal artist in all time. 
he doesn't get his proper love and respect from a lot of these clowns in the business. He doesn't. And as a solo artist, he should be in the Hall of Fame. For all the deserving artists who've had their butts smooched by everybody on that voting committee through decades, there's still one guy that won't kiss your ass and won't probably get in as a solo artist for a while because of that. That's offensive that Ozzy isn't even being considered to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist. To get an idea about maybe why, <laughs> you kind of got to go back a few years, back when Sabbath got nominated, and he asked them to take their name off the ballot because their nod, as he called it, was meaningless. <laughs> in the letter he wrote he said just take our name off the list save the ink forget about us the nomination is meaningless because it's not voted on by the fans well said us <laughs> it's voted on by the supposed elite for the industry and the media who've never bought an album or concert ticket in their lives so their vote is irrelevant to me let's face it black sabbath has never been media darlings we're a people's band and that suits us just fine that is Ozzy to a T. People from the Hall's response was, Ozzy can't be taken off the nomination list. That's probably why he's not getting much love on the solo side. Makes sense. Could have been a real problem, Marcus, if they never put Black Sabbath in. I'll just say that. <laughs> Next time we get together to talk about this amazing band, it's going to be, I would say, very deep, involved, and hopefully not tedious because there are a lot of changes there's a song about changes <laughs> um, that go on after Ozzy leaves. Everybody basically changes out, but Iomi. I'm going to tell you the truth, though, buddy. I had never seen Black Sabbath with Ozzy until the retirement tour. It wasn't part of my world. It wasn't part of my universe of concert going back in the 70s. And then he was gone. Mm -hmm. Saw Ozzy a bunch. I've got an interview we got to get out of the drawer and digitize. It will be a whole lot of fun to turn into episodes. Let's do it. I was at the uh, same Sabbath show as you, by the way. Only one. How to do it. Yep. And I was so mad at myself for missing a couple other opportunities through the decades, but I never felt like it was right without Bill, without Ozzy. <laughs> That's fair. What a bunch who changed so much. Bill. Geezer. Tony. Ozzy. Black Sabbath. If you've got something you want to add, something we missed, or even if you just want to add your thoughts on Sabbath and the Aussie years, send us an email to imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can also hit us on Facebook at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll or on Twitter at Imbalance Histo. And you can also find us on Instagram at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is produced in the studios of Dark Doc Media. Till the next time we get together, and there will be a next time for us to get together and talk about Black Sabbath. It may not be soon, but it'll be happening when we can get around to it because there's so much going on here at Dark Doc, trying to cook up all the information we can and tell you about the things that we're learning every day. So, till the next chance we get to do that, signing off, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. April is Punk Rock Month on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. 
So, I mean, he really had embraced the music business and scene in New York prior to opening Hillies and certainly prior to opening CBGB. Yes, one of his big strengths was being able to book bands. You mentioned Miles Davis. I'm sure he booked many other legendary jazz greats. He booked Zeppelin and The Doors and other bands mm-hmm. in the East Coast Crazy. and clubs. So this guy knew exactly what he was doing. He knew how to do it, and he was really good at it. And it's obvious that the bands really liked him and really trusted him. Yes. Punk Rock Month is coming. Well, let's tie some things together here. All right. Sterling Morrison, member of the Velvet Underground, met Lou, but he wasn't going to Syracuse. He was visiting Jim Tucker, who is the older brother of Velvet drummer Mo Tucker. See how this all comes together? It's kind of weird because the guy's up there visiting... Mo Tucker's older brother, how does he run into Lou? Are they talking at that little pub, having yeah, a brew? Maybe. You know, do they run into each other in the commons, like bump into each other? Hey, hey, ooh, hey, whoops. Punk Rock Month is coming. All I can tell you is that when I started looking into this, I would have never thought that this would be one of those nuggets that I would find. When he was writing Anarchy in the UK, Johnny Lydon says he hated the rhyme scheme because nothing rhymes with antichrist. <laughs> I almost like passed coffee through my nose when I read that one. Before. Are you fucking me too? Punk Rock Month is coming. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 